with me, turn with me in your Bible to Job chapter 15. Job chapter 15, and we've come to a place now in the book of Job where the title of today's message is Grace in the Middle of Suffering. And I really pray that you really take notes when we come and we study the book of Job because the book of Job is long. And the book of Job is difficult, just like trials, right? <laughs> Aren't trials long and difficult? Well, this book just really illustrates that as well. It's very long and it's difficult. <laughs> and, I, and, and one of the things that we must notice as we approach the book of Job and every time we open it is that it's a book of poetry. That's exactly why sometimes you have to pause and read it again and be slow when it comes to your comprehensions because it's a book filled with poetry. What does that mean when, when you have a poem or you have a book that is filled with poetry that it's meant or these words are meant to be felt? The book of Job is a book that you are not only to read, it's a book that you are to feel. Did you, did you hear that? It's a book not that you should only listen to, that you should hear. It's a book that you should feel. And a lot of the times you're going to say, well, yeah, I felt that way before. Or I know how he feels. Because that's what poetry does. But we're going to see here that as Job continues this dialogue with his friends, we learn the importance of the words of using words of compassion and not words of condemnation. Words of compassion and not words of condemnation. Do you notice that when you're going through trials, you ought to use words of compassion and not words of condemnation? The Bible says, Come therefore boldly to the throne of grace, not to the throne of condemnation. Would you remember that tonight? You are coming boldly to the throne of grace, not the throne of condemnation. And you don't have to be a stranger now to suffering, as we've learned. We don't, you don't have to be a stranger to suffering. You can, you can know suffering in order to be familiar with hope. That is where we left off last week and where he was desperate. He was crying out for hope. He was crying out for hope. And he was saying, is there anything else to look forward to than this misery, than this suffering, than this season in my life? But yes, we know that we have an assurance in the resurrection. We have an assurance in, in, that, that we will have eternal life, that we will live in glory, that we have a strong motivation to keep us even when, we're, when things are going tough. Did you know that as things are going tough, your motivation can be eternal life, that this is not it, that there is more to look forward to than just suffering? In Romans chapter 15, verse 13, it says this. This is a promise. Romans 15, 13, it says, Now may the God of hope, yes, I can have hope that this is not it. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace. Maybe today you came filled with anxiety and depression, with fear and with doubt, with, with discouragement and, and, and being disillusioned, something of that nature. But it said, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that you can abound by hope, you can have hope, and it can abound because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And now as we learn and as we talk about hope, we're going to see here that his friends come with words, these words of condemnation. And it's important that we realize this because in the moment of trial, do you choose words of condemnation? 
Or in the moment of trial, do you choose words of compassion? Do you feel anything for someone else's pain? And the reason why we talk about this is because not only is he enduring suffering, Job, he's also enduring these graceless words from his friends. Do you notice that? That makes everything much harder. That not only is he enduring suffering, he's also the ultimate test is to endure the condemnation from those that he loved. He's enduring that as well. These heartless accusations that begin now in the hearts of his friends, they begin with pride. You know that pride is always the enemy of grace? And the reason why sometimes that we cannot demonstrate grace to someone is because of pride. Pride is always the enemy of grace. Pride will never allow you to exercise grace. Only humility will exercise grace. And Job's friends were not giving him any grace. In fact, I've heard it said before, Job probably thought, with friends like these, who needs enemies? <laughs> Just think about it. I have friends like that, man, I, have no, I don't need enemies. I have them right here. These are my friends. But if there's something that we ought to learn in the book of Job is, Lord, if you're teaching us anything through the endurance of Job, Lord, teach us the value of grace. Do you know the value of grace today? Have you learned it? Because you really learn what grace means, not when someone else is suffering, but when you're suffering. And you, and you cry out, you expect, you are desiring, you are hungry for someone to look at you and demonstrate some grace in your life the way God has demonstrated grace to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would learn the value of grace tonight, that, that Lord, teach us not only to learn the value of grace, that we would say, Lord, I want to learn how to demonstrate it. Do you know how to demonstrate grace to people? Do you, do you understand that, that the Lord needs to teach us tonight that grace is always needed? Grace is always needed. Notice that. Do you know the value of it? Do you know how to demonstrate it? And do you know that it's always needed? Why is grace always needed for someone that's going through difficult times? Because it's only grace. It is only through grace that we can have hope. Did you... Just think about your own life. There is no way that we can experience hope without grace. In fact, hope acknowledges the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Hope acknowledges that we have been forgiven. Hope acknowledges that we're sinners, but we cannot have eternal life. And hope points us back to grace every time. And that's exactly why we must remember it. It's acknowledging the grace of God through His Son. And notice this, when we think about grace and we think about giving people that hope and through grace is that we know, we know one thing. That we have to be mindful, we have to be conscious. Because if you knew what people were going through, would you show them grace? If you knew what people were going through at school, at work, if you knew what that person sitting next to you right now is going through, would you show them grace? Chuck Smith, I love what he said. He said, I'd rather error in the sight of grace than in the sight of discipline. A lot of times we like to err and we're, we have a reputation of being really good when we want to exercise discipline. But what happens? How come we're not liberal? How come we are not free to exercise and utilize grace? I'd rather make a mistake when it comes to showing someone grace. 
You see, it's important that we know what, what grace means. Because this is exactly what Job needed. This is what we all need today. And we got to respect and we got to appreciate Job in, 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 in the fact that he's an example of obedience. And you know what he teaches us is that obedience is a choice. Obedience is not a feeling. Obedience is not a season. <laughs> obedience is a choice. And we obey God because we love Him. We obey God because of love, not because of circumstance. Do you see how sometimes our circumstances change and then our obedience changes as well? That's not true obedience. We have a higher motivation to be able to obey God, and that's because He loved us first, so now we love Him as well. We love Him because He first loved us. Therefore, we obey. It's not based off our circumstances. It's not based off whether you're having a good day or a bad day. It's based off of choice, and it's based off of a higher motivation of love. That's why we obey. Satan was trying to discredit now Job. He was trying to prove that he did not have integrity by changing his circumstances so that he can deny God. When your circumstances change, do you deny God? Now let's read Job 15 verse 1. Because it's important that we have this introduction as we step into here what Eliphaz, his friend, says as he accuses Job of his now incompetence to understand, of his empty talk, to understand now why is it that he's suffering. What does he fail to exercise? What does he fail to recognize? What does he fail to realize? Grace. Grace. Job 15 verse 1, the Eliaphaz, the Tirmai, answered and said, Should a wise man answer with empty words and fill himself with the east wind? And he's criticizing here Job a second time. And he says, you think that with your empty speech with the east wind, he, he now compares his speech with the east wind. Now the east wind is a violent, scorching wind. Now and he's saying that's exactly how it sounds when you talk. A violent, scorching wind. And it says, verse 3, should, should he reason with unprofitable talk? Do you think that someone that is wise should not reason now or talk with someone that, that is foolish in their speech or by speech with which he can be no good? Yes, you cast off fear and restrain prayer before God. He's saying, you are empty speech now is demonstrating now that your sins or your lack of fear or your lack of respect now is being demonstrated in the way you're talking. He starts to accuse him, you don't, you don't fear God anymore. Look at the way you're talking. You're crying out to God that way, saying that you're innocent. Now, verse 4, yes, you cast out fear. You have no more respect and restraint prayer before God, for your iniquity teaches your mouth. It is your sin that is talking. It is your sin that is speaking now. And you see here, for your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, and not I. Yes, your own lips testify against you. You know, it's your sin, Job, that's talking. It is your now guilt that is testifying. It's your guilty conscience that is saying all of this nonsense. And now in verse 7, are you the first man who was born? Do you think that... You have a lot of experience, Job. You think you're older and wiser than us? 
Or were you made before the hills? Have you heard the counsel of God? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? Do you think that you're the one that has wisdom under control, that you've been born before us, or that you created wisdom? Were you there when God created it all now? Notice what he's saying here in verse 9. What do you know that we do not know? Do you see the pride there? Verse 9, what do you know that we don't know, Job? It is pride always that it is the enemy of grace. And that's exactly why they couldn't show now grace, because their heart was filled with pride. Now verse 10, it says here, What do you understand that is not in us? What do you think that you understand, or what do you think that you know of that we don't know of? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us much older than your father. We're, we're older than your father. We're more wise. We're more competent. We have more experience. Do you think that you can outsmart us in the way you're saying all of this? You know, there's one of the wisest things that we can realize, yes, is that with, with age comes experience. But not every experience brings wisdom to some people, unfortunately. We pray that it does. But age is not a requirement for wisdom. The Holy Spirit will give you wisdom, no matter how old you are. Now, verse 11. Are the consolations of God too small for you? Do you think that what God has now is too small or is not enough for you to understand? Why was he saying, why were they saying that about age and what God has for you to understand? Because they were all basing everything off of tradition. Tradition can be a guide, but it should never be a jailer to us. Yes, we learn from the past, but we're not stuck in it. And this man was stuck in the past, and he's saying, do you think that, that God's wisdom or counsel is too small for you, or that, that you don't understand it, or you cannot use it, and the word spoken gently with you? Why does your heart uh, carry you away? Why is it that you're being carried away now by your feelings? Why are you being carried away now, or taken away now in your reasoning? And why do your eyes wink at that you turn your spirit against God, or you're angry against God, verse 13, and let such words go out of your mouth. Why do you let your temper go away that way? Why don't you control your temper? He's telling them in verse 13. And why is it that you let those words come out of your mouth? Now, from verse 14 to verse 16, he's talking about how is it that Job believes that he is a man of integrity when the nature of man is sin? Yes, the nature, our nature is sin. However, does that mean that we cannot be blameless or demonstrate integrity? Absolutely not. In our nature, in our sinful nature, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be blameless. Even in our sinful nature, we also have a different nature because we've been born again. <laughs> That's a spiritual nature. That's the nature that we want to exercise by the power of the Holy Spirit. And look what he tells us in verse 14. What is man that he could be pure? You think that you can be pure or, or righteous? Why do you pretend to be righteous now, Job? And he who was born of a woman that he could be righteous. You're just a human being. You're just like us. Why do you think that, that you are excused from this type of suffering? Obviously, it's because you've sinned. If God puts no trust in His saints or in His angels, verse 15, if it is God that doesn't even trust angels now, and the heavens are not pure in His sight, and even in the heavens was their pride able to sneak in, how much more in your life, Job, are you not subject to that as well? Are you not guilty of that as well? How much less man who is abominable and filthy, look at, if that happened in heaven, look at in man, it can happen, who drinks iniquity like water. 
Why does he say man drinks iniquity like water? Because our nature, our sinful nature desires now to just, it has a thirsty craving to go out and do sin. That's our nature. It craves, it thirsts for that in our sinful nature. Right? How much more is a man who is sinful? 17, from verse 17 to verse now 26, he tells us that he's suffering now. Now the wicked, and he answers from experience again. And the experience is that he is a sinful man. Now verse 17, I will tell you, hear me what I have seen. I will declare what wise men have told. Not hiding anything received from their fathers. It is wise men with experience from their fathers that have passed down this. And I will tell you this, whom alone the land was given and no alien passed among them who have been here for much longer than you can ever know, Job. These men that have walked this land much before you. The wicked man writes with pain all his days. It is the wicked that deserve or write to themselves or now are subject to pain all of his days. And the number of years is hidden from the oppressor. They have no hope. They're being punished and, and they go out with no hope. Dreadful sounds are in his ear. He's being tormented, that person that is wicked. In prosperity, the destroyer comes upon him. The, that which is a destroyer has victory or overpowers that person. Let's read verse 22. He does not believe that he will return from darkness. For a sword is waiting for him. Not only does this person is overpowered, they also walk out in fear. And they don't believe that they're going to come back if they go out in darkness, that they will come back and live. You see, he's talking about a person that is now wicked person that is living with a guilty conscience that they are going to die or suffer. Now, verse 23, he wanders about for bread, saying, where is it? Where is my substance? This is the wicked person that his friend is referring to, Eliaphaz. He knows that a day of darkness is ready at his hand. This man just keeps thinking, or the wicked keep thinking, about the day that they're going to die. Verse 23, trouble and anguish make him afraid. They overpower him like the king ready for battle. I don't know about you. Have you ever felt overpowered like Someone that is a king that is ready for battle and that is just flexing their strength over now their enemy. See, that's exactly how the wicked feel. Overpowered the same way that you feel, Job. For he stretches out his hand against God. Why is it that this man feels this way? Well, verse 24, it's because this man is rebellious. He stretches his hand against God and he acts defiantly against the Almighty running stubbornly against him with a strong embossed shield. The reason he feels this way is because he's a rebellious man. Because he's rebellious against God, because he acts defiantly, because he's fighting with a strong shield against the will of God. So verse 27, Though he has covered his face with fatness and made his waist heavy with fat, he dwells in desolate cities and houses which no one inhabits, which are destined to become ruins. Although this wicked man thinks he has money, the fatness and the riches, the wealth that he thinks that he has, the, the houses that he thinks he has, he has that one day. Yes, he might have that now, but soon enough his house is going to be destroyed. Sooner or later his house is going to be burnt down. Verse 28. And this is what he's telling him, and he's wanting him to realize his fate and his future. He will not be rich, nor will his wealth continue, nor will his possessions overspread the earth. He will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry out his, his branches. And by the breath of his mouth, he will go away. Let him not trust 
in futile things and deceiving himself for futility will be his reward. Now, is verse 31 true? Absolutely it is true. But is it applied in the wrong situation? Yes, it is. Because in verse 31, it talks about that person that is rebelling against God and is putting their trust in empty or riches. Empty things or riches. Let him not trust in empty things. It's important that we also learn from this because this is true that we ought to not be now trusting in empty things as told in verse 31. For futility or emptiness will be his reward. It will be accomplished before his time and his branch will not be green. He will be robbed from everything that he's expecting to ever be a part of. He will shake off his unripe grape like a vine and cast off his bosom like an olive tree. This person will never grow up, never live to see their prime. He goes on, For the company of hypocrites will be barren and fire will consume the tents of bribery. Do you see how now the pride has become so thick that in verse 34, the man that he knew to be the greatest man in his land he now, in verse 34, calls him a hypocrite. He compares him with a hypocrite. He said, just like a hypocrite, he said, that man is going to be now destroyed. Now verse 35. They conceive trouble and bring forth futility. Their womb prepares deceit. Verse 35. All this man wants to do is give birth to trouble, to evil, and to lies. They're filled with emptiness. They're filled with hypocrisy. And at this point, you have to think about it. He's just been called a hypocrite by his friend. At this point, he feels distressed. He feels disgusted by their counsel that they so want to give him. He feels even depressed now by the situation that he's doing. Is Not only is he enduring his physical suffering, his emotional loss, but he's also enduring the condemnation of those around him. And he goes into this almost depression that you see in his words. Because this is what happens when somebody hits rock bottom. When somebody hits rock bottom. But when someone does go to that place, did you know that God has provided us a different way? God has provided you and me a different way. What has He provided for us? His presence, His Holy Spirit, to comfort us when we go to that place. So that we don't seek the refuge, we don't seek the answers, we don't seek the safety of something else outside of the Holy Spirit. That's what we ought to seek. What does it say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4? It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. You know what the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort does? Who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by. So the Holy Spirit gives you comfort so that you also in turn go and comfort others in their moment of need. It's been said before that God does not comfort you to make you comfortable. God doesn't comfort you to make you comfortable. But God now comforts us to make us comforters. Do you see that? God comforts you to make you a comforter. And God's comfort has never only been given to you, it's been loaned to you, and it should be passed down to others. What does the Bible tell us? The Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, comforts me, not that I can be comfortable, so that I may receive and may be able to comfort all others 
in their own tribulation. You see, Warren Worsby said this, the best way to help a discouraged person or help discouraged people, the best way to help discouraged people is to listen with your heart and not just with your ears. Have you ever tried to help someone that's discouraged and all you're doing is listening with your ears and you don't have your heart open to have compassion? The best way to help a discouraged person is to listen not only with your ears, but have an open heart to, to do what? To share their pain and have compassion. Now let's go to chapter 16 because now Job is lamenting his miserable comforters. These men that did not demonstrate the grace that we so need in that moment. There's sometimes that people are going through situations and always say, you know what? Well, they deserve to be there. <laughs> well, you know what? It is, it is right that they're there. They're finally going to learn. I hope they learn this time. And there's no heart open for compassion, for grace to be sensitive as we would want that grace to be demonstrated to us if we were going through a trial. That's exactly why we learn grace in the trial. Because we're learning something that we need, that others need as well. God doesn't comfort you to make you comfortable. He, may, he comforts you to make you a comforter to someone else through His Spirit. Now Job 16 verse 1, it says, And Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. I've had enough. I heard you now. Have you ever been tired about so, of someone that just continues to accuse you and condemn you and to judge you in your moment of trial? He, this is how he feels. Miserable or troublesome comforters you are, are all. <laughs> you guys are no good. You're not a comforter at all, at all. He's pleading for justice. He says, shall words of wind or these empty words have an end? Would you just be quiet already? Everything you're saying, nothing means anything to me. It's so empty. It's not providing me encouragement. You're criticizing me here. And it says, his, he says here in verse 3, Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do. You think I can't say what you're saying? I can also say what you're saying. If your soul were in my soul's place, if you were in my position... Now, this is a key learning. I pray you underline this place because if your soul or if you were in their position, what would you desire? Would you desire a little bit of grace? If here it says, if your soul were in my soul's place, I could heap up words against you. I can also criticize you the way you criticize me. However, I can also shake my head at you. Shake my head. You see that person suffering? What do you do? Instead of showing compassion, you shake your head. That person is ridiculous. He said, don't you think I can do the same thing? There, there are times where we want forgiveness, but we do not extend it. Or we think that we deserve forgiveness, but that person does not deserve forgiveness. But look what Job says in verse 5. But I would strengthen you with my mouth. Do you strengthen people with your mouth? Or do you, do you verbally accuse them and abuse them with your lips? When was the last time you strengthened someone with your mouth? I would encourage you now with my mouth. I will provide to you encouraging words of comfort with my lips, now it says. And, and the comfort of my lips would relieve your grief. I love the Bible that it speaks to us. That our lips would be seasoned with what? With grace. That it would be grace to those that hear. It's amazing when we have received the grace of God and our lips... Or anointed with the grace of God. 
There is nothing that is ministers to a troubling heart more than lips that are anointed with grace. And if you're going to serve the Lord, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, a disciple, you better ask the Lord, give me lips that are anointed with grace. Because that's what hurting people need. They don't need lips that are filled with criticism. Now, let's keep reading verse 5. It says, Though I speak my grief, I am not relieved. If I, if I talk about how I feel, that doesn't change that I'm still in pain. And if I remain silent, how am I eased? If I speak, I'm still in pain. If I don't say anything, I'm still in pain. But now He has worn me out. Who is He talking about? The Lord. I feel that, that now He's grounded me down now. You have made me desolate or leaned me out. You have made me empty. All of my company, my entire family is now gone. I've, you've devastated my family, Lord. You've leaned me out. You have shriveled me up, verse 8, as it is witness against me. My leanness rises up against me and bears witness to my face. He said, you're doing this, Lord, as to prove that I am guilty of something. And he starts to feel this pain that his now friends are applying against him. Not only does he hear the pain, he feels that pain. Verse 9, he tears me in with his wrath, talking about the Lord as he's, you know what he's crying out for? Justice. Lord, I just need some justice. You know what man's heart, what we desperately want? We want justice. That's why people want to get even all the time. I want them to feel the pain that I, they made me feel. That's what our nature wants. I want them to feel the pain. I want them to suffer the way I suffer. I want to escape this pain. Justice. You want justice? You know where you find justice? At the cross. Where he said, you're justified. Just as you've never sinned. And he declared you innocent. He declared you not guilty. Now let's read here, verse 9. He tears me with his wrath. He hates me. He gnashes at me with his teeth. My adversity sharpens his gaze on me. I feel like it is sharp teeth against me. I feel the pressure. I feel the humiliation that is against me. They gape at me with their mouth. They're laughing at me. They strike me reproachfully on the cheek. They gather together against me. They're laughing at me. They're mocking me. Verse 11, God has delivered here to me the ungodly. God has allowed them to come against me now and turn me over to the hand of the wicked. Now the wicked now are coming against me now and they're shaking me to pieces and breaking me up so that I can feel suffering. And they set me up as a target. Look how it says here in verse 11 and 12. I was at ease, verse 11, God has delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over to the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, here it says, but he has shattered me, he's broken me. Uh, he also has taken me by my neck and shaking me to pieces. I was fine, Lord. What happened? One day everything changed. But he maintained his integrity. You know, everything can change in one split moment. It doesn't take 30 days, a week for things. Everything, anything can change today, tonight. Before you go to bed, things can change. But do you know how to suffer? Do you know how to trust God? Let's read verse 13. For he has set me up for his target. I feel like I'm a target. He's going through it. And it says here, his archers surround me. He pierces my heart. He does not pity. He pours out my here gal 
on the ground. My blood is spilled on the ground now. My suffering. He breaks me with wounds upon wound. He runs at me like a warrior. This is how I feel like the Lord, he's saying, is coming against me. He has allowed all of this. I have seen, I have sewn sackcloth over my skin, or I've dressed myself with signs of mourning. I'm not dressed all nice and celebratory. I'm dressed in a sign of mourning. I'm dressed in grief now. I don't even want to go out. And I've laid my head in the dust. My face is flushed from weeping. Have your, your face ever been flushed from crying? Right? For, for the men, your eyes are just burning red and the women that are just makeup all over the place maybe, right? Just flushed from crying. Weakness poured out. Flushed from weakness, showing grief. And, my, and on my eyelids, it is the shadow of death. On my eyelids, the shadow of death. Well, you know what he's saying here? I can see on my eyelids that death is coming soon. I can see it so close. I can see it creeping up on me. You see the pain that he's experiencing, although no violence is in his hands. And, it, and my prayer is pure. Although my, there is, I have pure hands. Although, verse 17, I'm innocent. I've done no wrong now. There is no violence in my hands. O earth, do not cover up my blood. Verse 18, he's crying out and let my cry have no resting place. Someone hear my cry. Verse 19, as he says, and he's crying out for an advocate from heaven, for someone to step in. Surely even now my witness is in heaven. Do you know that as you feel the pressure, as you feel the guilt, as you feel maybe the shame of sin, of condemnation, you have a witness in heaven. I love that the Lord is our witness. Have you ever had someone or seen something and and maybe a, a film or a TV or, or you've read a book where someone's called to witness for someone else. I love that the Lord Jesus Christ is a witness for me and for you. That he stands there and he witnesses against the enemy for your case. This is amazing. And he always wins. Now he's saying here in verse 19, Surely my witness is laid in heaven and my evidence is on a high my friends scorn me. My evidence and my witness and my advocate is from heaven. While my friends now accuse me, it says this, I pour out my eyes or pour out in tears to God. That's the best thing that we can do when people accuse us. To pour out our tears to God. The Bible says that He has and He has numbered all your tears in a bottle. Every time that you shed a tear that God knew about it. Do you not have a God that knows and has grace? Every time you cry, He knew about it. He has collected your pain. And He has said, here, I want to collect your pain for you. I want to carry it for you. That's compassion. Carrying someone else's pain. Do you carry someone else's pain? Now let's read it. Verse 21. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God. Oh, is there anyone... That can plead now for me with God. Is there anyone that can come and, and really plead and, and mediate between God and man? As he says here, as man pleads for his neighbor, as someone that would go and defend his neighbor. Is there anyone that can do that? He still has this unclear. But we know that there's someone that defends you before the enemy. And that is Jesus. For when a few years are finished, I shall go the way of no return. For just in a few days, it seems that I will die. 
But what is he crying out for? He's crying out for someone that will soon come and intercede for him. Why is he doing that? But because his friends are accusing him. But yes, we have someone that is interceding for us. Why don't you hold now your place in Job there, 17, as we go into it. But go to Romans chapter 8. Would you go to Romans chapter 8? And let's go to verse 31 because he's crying out for an intercessor. Someone that would plead his case. Someone that would pray and stand up for him. Someone that would witness for him. And in Romans 8 verse 31, we're going to see how Christ does that. A picture of when Paul tells us that this is exactly what Christ does for us. When we're getting condemned. When we're getting accused. And I pray the next time you have doubts, you have fears, you're getting accused and condemned by the enemy that you're not worth it. That you blew it again. That, that, that there's no more room for grace in your life. I want you to know there is much more room grace still left in your life. Romans 8 verse 31. It says, what then shall we say to these things? What are we going to say to these things? What are we going to say to the sin? We're going to say to the accuser. We're going to say to those people that accuse us. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, what does it say? Who can be against us? And this is the confident proclamation that me and you can have in the middle of that condemnation. For he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him. This is the gospel. He did not spare or he did not withhold his son, but delivered him up for all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If he gave us a son, would he not give us all other things? Would he not give us forgiveness and grace? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who's going to bring a charge? Who can accuse God's people, God's church? Who is it that can now accuse them? It is God who justifies. You want justice? It is God. You don't justify yourself. Your works don't justify you. The church doesn't justify you. Nothing justifies you. It is God who justifies you. And He does that through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Now verse 34. Who is he who, is con who condemns? Who is it that's going to condemn you? Tell me. This is awesome because you can walk out so comforted. Who can condemn me? I'm God's chosen person. Now it says here, verse 34, Who is who condemned? It is Christ who died. And furthermore also has risen. This is amazing. Who is ever even. Who is even. Not only has he risen. Even at the right hand of God. Who also makes intercessions for us. Who pleads our case. You know what he intercessions for us means? He is praying for us daily before the Father. You cannot be accused in the same presence of the grace of God because he is so ready there to defend you. He makes intercession for us. Verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation. You think tribulation can separate you? You think accusation or distress can separate me? Oh, I'm going through distress or depression or anguish, anxiety. You think I can separate me or persecution or famine, not having anything to, you know, no substance or nakedness or danger, peril, or a sword or someone that's coming against me evil? Is that going to separate me from the love of God? Absolutely not. And as it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Here he's saying, Paul, I'm going through the same type of suffering. Yet in all things, this is amazing. 
we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Even when you're suffering, you are more than a conqueror because Christ has loved you and he has provided a way of victory through Jesus. When you say, I feel like I'm defeated. However, God has called you more than a conqueror. I feel like I'm wasted, I'm burnt out, that I feel like I, I've been now grounded down, that, I, that there's no room for any escape for me. God has called you a more than a conqueror now. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nothing, nothing in the past, the present, or future, nor height, nor death, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, why is it that we're reading this while we're studying the book of Job? Because here Job must have felt separated. He felt separated from God. But no situation can separate you from the love of God when Christ is interceding on our behalf before the Father. There are times where we feel separated. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And in Job now 17, as we turn back, we're going to see that he's praying now for this relief that he so desperately wants. This is his prayer to God. Look what he says. My spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. Now I'm broken up. The grave is ready for me. I'm losing strength. I do not have strength to go on now. This is how he feels. Let's read now. The grave is ready for me. Are not mockers with me? Are not those that, that accuse me with me now? He's broken now. And this is amazing when you reach a place when you're broken because God will always accept brokenness. And when you feel that you're too weak for warfare, that's when God wants you to approach Him. Now verse 3, it says, And does not my eye dwell on their provocation? Now put a pledge for me with yourself. Who is he who will shake hands with me? Lord, defend me. Who is he who be, that's going to stand up for me now? Lord, defend me, because no one's going to stand up for me. For you have hidden their heart from understanding. They don't understand. They're just accusing me with bad intentions. They're seeking to take advantage of me and I'm pleading for justice. Therefore, you will not exalt him. He who speaks flattery to his friends, even the eyes of his children will fail. I have nothing to look forward to, Lord. But he has made me a byword of the people and I have become one in whose face men spit. I'm just humiliated now. And my eye has also grown dim because of the sorrow of all my members are like shadows. Upright men are astonished at this. And the innocent stirs himself up against the hypocrite. Here, Lord, I feel like people are coming against me. My eyes are growing dim because of crying. The innocent rise up now against the ungodly. But now in verse 9, yet the righteous will hold to his way. And he who has clean hands will be stronger and stronger. Wow, verse 9. Even in the trial, look what it says in verse 9. The righteous will hold to his way. But I know, Lord, you're with me. The righteous holds on to his way. And what does it tell us here? And he who has clean hands will be stronger and stronger. I know, Lord, that I have clean hands. I will be stronger and stronger now. Verse 10. But please, come back again. Now he tells them, as he's telling his friends, come back again, all of you, for I shall not find one wise man among you. Come back with a better argument. Because none of you guys are bringing me something that is of substance to comfort me in my pain. My days are past now. 
and my purpose are broken off, even though the thoughts of my heart, they change the night into day, and the light is near, they say in the face of darkness. Now he says in verse 11 something interesting, but because he, he's saying that my purpose is broken off, and my hope has disappeared. However, verse 12, because these people, these men have come against me and they change or they give me this opposite counsel and he feels as if nobody cares. If I wait for the grave on my house, verse 13, and if I make my bed in the darkness, if I say to the corruption, you are my father, and to the worm, you are my mother and my sister, verse 15, where then is my hope? If I just accept this, if I accept everything they're telling me, this, this opposite counsel, where is my hope then? That is the big question. Where, is, where do you get your hope from today? When you are receiving all of that pressure, when you're receiving all of that trial, where is your hope? Verse 15. As for my hope, who can see it? Because anyone tell me where my hope is? Can anyone direct me to where my hope is? Will they go down to the gates of Sheol? Shall we have a rest together in the dust? Is anyone going to tell me before I die where my hope is going to come from? You see, we, we are going to suffer as believers. People, everyone will go through suffering. Everyone will go through suffering. But we must not suffer as others that have no hope. You will suffer, but you are not to suffer as someone who doesn't have hope. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, would you write this down? It says, but I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. I don't want you to be ignorant that you think that you have no hope as others that, that don't sleep. I don't want you to be ignorant and suffer as someone who doesn't have hope. We get to suffer as people who have hope. And our hope is not a dying hope. Our hope is not left to decay. Our hope is a living hope because Christ won the victory over death. Therefore, we can have a living hope. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19 says this, In this is a life only that we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. Even we are shown hope by the Lord. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those that have fallen asleep. That tells us that we are not to fear death because we have hope. And even in suffering, we do not have to suffer like those without hope. What, are we, what is it that we're learning in these, these chapters? We're learning something very important. How needed grace was. You know that, that grace is so needed, and we've, we talked about that even as beginning. Because here, Job is facing things, and he's looking at everything, and everything is so unclear for him. Everything was so, and maybe today you came and things are very unclear for you. It's very foggy in the trials sometimes. It's very foggy in the tribulation where you can't see anything, and, and all you have is just but a little bit of room to follow something. Have you ever been somewhere where it's so foggy that you cannot see anything? You have to almost pull over if you're driving because it's so foggy that you cannot continue in an unsafe environment because of the fog. He feels confused. He feels unclear. He feels that he's filled with doubt now. But the grace of God is needed in every occasion. The grace of God is needed in every now situation. In every opportunity, grace is needed. Every opportunity, grace is needed. Every occasion, grace is needed as well. Because even in the fog, guess what will happen? Even in the fog, grace will bring you home. Even in the fog, the grace of God will bring you home. Why is that important? Job's friends fail to recognize, fail to realize three things. 
And I, I don't want you to write these down, please, because these are important. And we can be strengthened in spite of pain. We can press on because of these three things. Number one, His grace is always available. I'm going through pain. His grace is always available. Hebrews chapter 4.16 Come therefore boldly to the throne of grace that you may be obtained mercy and find grace to help you in time of need. You're going through a situation right now. His grace is always available. Every opportunity, every occasion, I can press on. I can have confidence in my loving Father that He will do because of His grace what is best for me. His grace is always available. Number two, His grace is always abundant. What does the Bible tell us in Ephesians 1, 7? In Him we have the redemption of, through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of His grace. You see, that person is going through suffering. I'm going through suffering. I feel like the condemnation of the enemy, the accusations, but His grace is always abundant. I feel distressed, filled with anxiety, filled with pain, filled with just these dark thoughts that I feel like the fog is all over me, but the grace of God can take me home because His grace is always available. His grace is always abundant. It's rich. It's available for me. It has not ran out. There is still more room for grace. And number three, His grace. I, this is my favorite one as I was, as I was just studying. His grace is always, and notice this, write this down. We Christians, we need this one. His grace is always appropriate. You ever thinking about if the grace of God is appropriate? Yes, it is. Well, should we extend grace? Absolutely. Is grace available and appropriate for me? Yes, it is. It's appropriate in this situation. Grace is appropriate and available in any situation. There is never a situation where grace is not appropriate. There is never a situation, an occasion where grace cannot meet the need. It is always appropriate. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, it says this, And I thank Christ, our Lord Jesus, who enabled me. I love this. Because He counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. I used to be a lost person. Blaspheming, persecuting, I did it without knowing I was blind. Verse 14, And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that amazing? That the grace of God, for Paul, he recognized that it was appropriate in his life, in his situation. In every occasion, and in every situation, in the fog, grace will take me home, because his grace, number one, is always available. His grace, number two, is always abundant. And His grace, number three, is always appropriate. We need to know the value of the grace of God. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord. We thank You for Your grace. And we ask that we would learn how to not only use it, to demonstrate it, Lord. We ask, God, that You would teach us, Lord, that Your grace means... Your Son, Jesus. We ask, Lord, that You would teach us, Lord, that it is always needed. And, Lord, that we would never, God, shy away from that. We would never, Lord, be reluctant to even enjoy or come boldly to the throne of grace in dark moments of our lives. 
In moments that we feel like it is too heavy for us to carry the burden. In moments where we see others that are carrying a burden that is too heavy for them to bear. That we would remember in their situation as we become a part of it that grace is always available. Grace is always abundant and grace is always appropriate, Lord. And therefore, through grace, you give us hope. Thank you for the hope that doesn't run out. We ask, Lord, that you would let us acknowledge hope. In Jesus' name. And together we said, Amen. Amen.